This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. Just because of the limited time I have tonight, I'll have to uh, save a return to the Tainbul Kunya for next week. And tonight I just wanted to share one of my favorite short stories uh, from the Celtic myths about the wanderings of Oshin in the other world. Now I've mentioned before, I think in the uh, in the episode about the invasions of Ireland, the Levor Gavala Eren that on the one hand I want to fill these great myths with the actual stories themselves, the earliest versions of them, the ones that seem to us now to be strange and not what we would expect from a story at all. It's the kind of thing that could not be made uh, into a Hollywood movie. But there are some cases, and the Levor Gavala Eren was one, in which the oldest story or the oldest version that we have is one that has been piled on and piled on, not, not just with uh, native tradition, but then with an overlaying of Christianity uh, after the monks come in and the conversions uh, begin and succeed, and then just a weird sense of what time can do to the kind of story that is meant to sort of sum up an entire uh, culture. Um, so that over the course of centuries, what you have is just an agglomeration of bits and pieces here and there, so that if you were actually able to sit down with all of, for instance, the Levar, Gavala, Eren, uh, it probably wouldn't be a very good or even a very coherent read. Uh, it would be difficult, but difficult almost uh, without a reward at the end. There's another version of what happens to the oldest stories, too. Um, and that is with the story of Oshin. Uh, reading again from James McKillop's Dictionary of Celtic Mythology, he has a, a long entry on Oshin. And he mentions that stories of his visit to the other world with a beautiful young woman are widespread in the oral traditions of Ireland and Scotland. But it is not until Michael Coman's literary version, The Lay of Oshin in the Land of Youth, which didn't appear until around uh, 1750, uh, that it effectively, he says, it effectively displaces all other versions of the story. So this is one of those rare times when um, the oldest version of the story, or uh, I don't know why to use the word pure, but something like that, 
uh, is actually replaced much later by a conscious literary creation. And one might even say that uh, um, that Yeats's version, called The Wanderings of Oshin, it's a long poem of about 30 pages, I think, even that uh, displaces, uh, might even displace Michael Coleman's version. Although I assume that Yeats is uh, just working off of Coleman's and doing what he can with it. So that's a nice way, too, that uh, sometimes, sometimes, very rarely it seems, can someone create a retelling or uh, a reordering of an old story and have it uh, and have it stick in the canon with the rest of the old myths as well. I sort of think of this also as a way uh, of looking at The Lord of the Rings and then looking at the movies. I don't really have a problem with the changes that were made in the movie. They just seem to be, it almost seems to be like a retelling and I can appreciate it much more that way. So what we have here is uh, tonight, so we have uh, James McKillop saying Michael Coman's version is probably uh, uh, the starting point of what we think of Oshin in the, in the other world now. That's about the year 1750. And what I was going to read from tonight actually comes from James McKillop's other book, Myths and Legends of the Celts. And this is his uh, summary of the story with, uh, with other scholarly bits mixed in. He says, The tale of Oshin's sojourn in a pleasure-filled other world seems barely connected to the rest of the cycle of stories about his life. Although always one of the most popular Athenian narratives, it became a staple of Irish and Scottish Gaelic storytellers until the 19th century. In the early man earliest manuscript version, the tale is structured to look like a double of the Achalang ne Senarach. That is a book that I'll be reading from soon as well. And in that, an aged Oshin is in dialogue with St. Patrick, explaining how he has reached this state of infirmity. But Oshin, the lover, cannot be seen as an extrapolation of the persona he projects in most Fenian stories in general, or the Akalam in particular. Some of the story's popularity and freestanding independence can be explained in noting that it is a blend of two international folktale types, and that it embraces fully five folk motifs about an extended stay in the land of youth. Along with these persistent appeals to the popular imagination, Oshin's tale benefits by having been smoothed into a more polished format during the 18th century, and this is by Michael Coleman, who lived from 1688 to 1760, who was a member of the Protestant ascendancy with a deep regard for Irish language tradition, which was unusual for his case. His Lay of Oshin in the Land of Youth, circa 1750, is written in modern Irish, where the fairy lover's name is spelled Niam. One second here. I'm going to get her name right. Niav. Sorry. Niav. <laughs> uh, employing the archaic accentual meter known as Abrahan, Coman's lay was not translated into English for a hundred years, 
but it inspired several elegant adaptations, as we see, such as with W.B.H.'s first long poem, The Wanderings of Oshin, in 1889. So here's the story itself. It says, One day a feeble, blind old man is taken to St. Patrick, weakened in body but strong in spirit. He scorns the doctrines of the newcomers and sings the praises of the Code of Honor and the way of life of the Fianna. He claims to be Oshin, son of Finn McCool. His claim to be Oshin, son of Finn McCool, looks doubtful to St. Patrick, as more than a span of a full human life has elapsed since the old leader's death. To convince the saint of his veracity, Oshin relates the following tale. After the defeat of the Fianna at what is now Garristown in North County, Dublin, Fion, Oshin, and a few others retreat to Loch Len in Killarney, County Kerry, a favorite haunt. They have much to lament. Most poignant is the slaughter of Finn's favorite grandson, Oscar, Oshin's son. Finn weeps. The beauty of the countryside suggests a means of raising the men's spirits. They will take their hounds on a hunt. They soon espy a young, hornless doe bounding through the forest with the dogs in barking pursuit. Hot on the trail, the men come upon an arresting vision. Instead of a deer, it is a beautiful young woman galloping towards them on a nimble white horse. Her startling loveliness suggests something above the human. Her golden crown and shining golden hair hanging in loops over her shoulders. Her luxurious cloak brightened with gold-embroidered stars, hangs down over the silk trappings of her horse. More alluring still is her face, her eyes as clear as the blue and blue as a May sky, her glowing white skin and her mouth as sweet as honeyed wine. A silver wreath adorns the horse's head, and gold glints from the saddle and even from its hoofs. Who had ever seen a finer horse? She identifies herself as Niav Chinwar of the Golden Hair, daughter of the King of Ternanog, the other world. Finn asks if she has left a husband and why she has come. She has refused many suitors, she explains, because she desires only Oshin, son of Finn, renowned for his handsomeness and sweet nature. Silent until this point. Oshin is initially thunderstruck, but then clearly pleased. He agrees to marry her, the most beautiful woman he has ever seen. She wants not only marriage, but for him to come away with her to Ternanog, where he will never grow ill or grow old, and where he can never die. There he will be crowned and enjoy every imaginable pleasure, food and wine in abundance, fine silks, powerful weapons, and jewelry. Tall trees bend low with fruit. Hundreds of gorgeous maidens will sing his praises, and a hundred brave warriors will follow his every command. He will still be able to hunt, accompanied by a hundred keen hunting dogs, and he will have Niav for his wife. Tiernanog lies to the west. 
On his journey there with Miav, Oshin encounters an ugly giant carrying a load of deerskins. They struggle for three days and nights, but powerful and threatening as the giant is, Oshin overcomes him. Such victory ensures a triumphant welcome for Oshin in Ternanog, with the award of Niav as his consort. In embrace, Niav is all the lover her appearance has implied. Their union produces three children, a daughter and two sons, one of them named for the dead boy, Oscar. All the wealth, comfort, and pleasure does not, however, prevent Oshin from feeling a small measure of homesickness. He longs to see Finn and his companions again. Niav's father grants his wish to visit his home, but Niav is perturbed by her husband's longing. She tells him she will refuse him nothing, but fears he may never return to her. He reassures her by reminding her that the white horse knows the way back, and he's really only going to look around. Consenting, she gives him a sterner warning. He should never dismount from his horse, never dismount from his horse, when he is back in mortal Ireland. If his foot so much as touches the ground there, he will never be able to return to Tirnanog. Lastly, sobbing, she tells him he will never be able to see Finn again, only a crowd of sour-faced monks and holy men. As he mounts his horse, she kisses him and tells him he will never come back to her or the land of youth. What Oshin does not quite comprehend is that while he feels he has been in Tirnanog only long enough to start a family, it has been three hundred years in the lives of earthbound mortals. His white horse takes him to Ireland swiftly, and he arrives in high spirits. They begin to dissipate when he interviews the people he finds there. They know all the stories of Finn McCool, more than they could begin to tell. Not only have they never seen Finn or any Fenians up close, but they perceive Oshin to be a giant, a curiosity. He proceeds to the hill of Allen in Leinster and finds it a bare hill overgrown with nettles, chickweed, and ragwort. The heartbreaking but unmistakable news can no longer be denied. Finn, his father, is dead, and there is no trace of his companions to be found anywhere. Moving on to Glenismol in County Dublin, favorite hunting ground of the Fianna, he answers the shouts of some sturdy men nearby who are trying to lift a heavy stone into a wagon. The name of the glen means Valley of the Ember, and it lies at the headwaters of the Dodder River, a modest body of water cited in many early Irish stories. As he stoops to help them, the girth around the horse's belly snaps, and Oshin falls to the ground. As Niav had predicted, he is immediately transformed into a very old man, looking all of his three hundred years. The crowd of mortals watch in horror, because on horseback Oshin had towered over them. Now he lies at their feet, helpless and hopeless, a spent, blind old man. I want to try something else here. 
that's one version. So that's in a sort of halfway scholarly book. Um, Here is a version of that story from Joseph Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces uh, from, from a book by a man named Curtin. I don't see the full citation here, but I wonder what the story sounded like about a hundred years ago in something like a scholarly slash popular edition. Let's just hear what is done with this story then. Uh, Oshin, the son of Finn McCool, one day was out hunting with his men in the woods of Aaron when he was approached by the daughter of the king of the land of youth. So you skip all of that introduction. Um, Oshin's men had gone ahead with the day's kill, leaving their master with his three dogs to shift for himself. And the mysterious being had appeared to him with the beautiful body of a woman, but the head of a pig. She declared that the head was due to a druidic spell, promising that it would vanish the very moment that he would marry her. Well, if that is the state you are in, he said, and if marriage with me will free you from the spell, I'll not leave the pig's head on you long. Without delay, the pig's head was dispatched, and they set out together for Tirnanog, the land of youth. Oshin dwelt there as a king many happy years. But one day he turned and declared to his supernatural bride, I wish I could be in Aran today to see my father and his men. If you go, said his wife, and set foot on the land of Aran, you will never come back here to me, and you'll become a blind old man. How long do you think it is since you came here? About three years, says Oshin. It is three hundred years, said she, since you came to this kingdom with me. If you must go to Erin, I'll give you this white steed to carry you. But if you come down from the steed or touch the soil of Erin with your foot, the steed will come back that minute and you will be where he left you, a poor old man. I'll come back. Never fear, said Oshin. Have I not good reason to come back? But I must see my father and my son and my friends and Aaron once more. I must have even one look at them. She prepared the steed for Oshin and said, This steed will carry you wherever you wish to go. Oshin never stopped till the steed touched the, oil of er the soil of Aaron, and he went on till he came to Knockpatrick and Munster, where he saw a man herding cows. In the field where the cows were grazing, there was a broad flat stone. Will you come here, said Oshin to the herdsman, and turn over the stone? Indeed, then I will not, said the herdsman, for I could not lift it, nor twenty men more like me. Oshin rode up to the stone, and reaching down, caught it with his hand and turned it over. Underneath the stone was the great horn of the Fenians, Borabu, which circled round like a seashell, and it was the rule that when any of the Fenians of Erin blew the Borabu, the others would assemble at once from whatever part of the country they might be in at the time.
Will you bring this horn to me? asked Oshin of the herdsman. I will not, said the herdsman, for neither I nor many more like me could even raise it from the ground. With that, Oshin moved near to the horn, and reaching down took it in his hand. But so eager was he to blow it that he forgot everything, and slipped in reaching till one foot touched the earth. In an instant the steed was gone, and Oshin lay on the ground, a blind old man. Now that's just two versions from two books, um, and they are wildly different in their details. That's wonderful. Um, and I wonder what Yeats does with it. I remember, I don't remember it being, um, I don't remember it being a great use of 30 pages of poetry, but I could be wrong. Uh, nothing is mentioned in MacKillop about the horn. Um, in any case, that seemed to be a good way to uh, fill a myth out tonight. Two versions of that story and wondering what the older ones or the other ones would be like. I suppose MacKillop is right. There is so much there that is of uh, standard use if you want to think of a collective unconscious or something like it. Um, it does pick up on so many things that are common across so many cultures of stories that uh, you can see what kind of wonderful work can be made from it. And at base, it does seem to be just the idea of uh, you can't go home again. Isn't that right? Uh, if you leave, you must uh, stay left and gone, and you cannot go back. And um, the whole idea of mourning over the lost child, and then mourning over not seeing your father and your family, and uh, losing the happiness that you have found over longing for the past and all of that. Um, it is a wonderfully... Uh, a wonderfully moving situation and a wonderful story to read from tonight. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.